Tony Brown liked Randy Weaver from the moment they first met. When you meet somebody in a small community, either you're your friend or you're their enemy, so what would be your choice? <laughs> That's his wife, Jackie, laughing in the background. The Weavers and the Browns were good friends and neighbors, before, during, and after the standoff. Tony and Jackie also wrote and self-published a book about Ruby Ridge and the Weavers. It really wasn't anything particularly uh, that stood out about them, other than they had really strong beliefs, and they stood together as a family. And they, of course, were anti-government, which is common up here. The Weavers' trouble began in the summer of 1990, when agents from the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms pushed Randy to become an informant. He refused, and they indicted him for selling illegal shotguns. You heard about that in our last episode. According to the Browns' book, this was already an anxious time for Randy and Vicki Weaver. The United States and its allies were mobilizing for the first Gulf War, which Vicki and Randy took as a sign that Armageddon was imminent. And when the ATF roped Randy into selling guns to an informant, the Weavers and their friends saw a nefarious agenda at work. This was part of a government program to wipe out a religion, a white supremacist religion or white separatist religion. The Weavers decided they would stay on the mountain and refused to submit to authorities. In February of 1991, Vicki sent two letters to the U.S. Attorney's Office, making it clear the family wasn't going to cooperate. In the first, she quoted a statement from The Order, the white supremacist group that had terrorized the Northwest in 1984. War is upon the land. The tyrant's blood will flow. In the second, Vicki wrote, Whether we live or whether we die, we will not bow to your evil commandments. They believed in themselves. They believed in people that they thought would stand up for what was right and wrong. I wanted to talk to Tony and Jackie to get a sense of what the Weavers were thinking when they made their stand against the government. The Browns were willing to talk, but they sent me an email setting some ground rules. I had to direct all my questions toward Tony. Jackie would answer where necessary. At first, Tony did all the talking, but I could sometimes hear Jackie prompting him in the background. You know, Aryan beliefs or white separatist beliefs or even white supremacist beliefs, whatever you want to call them, they're guaranteed by the Constitution. It's like black power. And it's just like black power or anything else. You can, you can call it whatever you want. In the end, the Weavers spent 18 months holed up in their cabin hiding from the law. Jackie was one of the friends who brought them food and supplies. That became especially important when Randy and Vicky got a surprise. Vicky was pregnant at age 41. In October of 1991, she gave birth to her fourth child, a daughter she named Elisheba, meaning God is my oath. The fact that the family was in a kind of self-imposed house arrest didn't change their baby plans much. I'm pretty sure it would have been a home birth anyway. Have you ever been into a hospital? Well, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> definitely. You know, they didn't trust doctors. No. To Tony and Jackie Brown, the idea that the Weaver family was a threat to anyone was ludicrous. Neither one of them had a criminal history of any kind. To the best of my knowledge, neither one of them ever even had a speeding ticket. But that's not how it looked from the outside. From Slate Podcasts, this is Standoff. I'm your host, Ruth Graham. 
On this episode, The Shootout. When Randy Weaver didn't show up for his court date, a judge issued a bench warrant, and the U.S. Marshal Service took on the job of bringing him in. This is Mike Johnson. I was the U.S. Marshal for the District of Idaho from 1990 to 1994. In the spring of 1992, the Weavers were still holed up on their property. Randy, Vicki, their three older children, and now an infant, too. Johnson and other U.S. Marshals suspected Randy was still leaving the cabin occasionally to run into town. They had written him letters, trying to persuade him to surrender, but the replies that came off the mountain were not encouraging. My husband was set up for a fall, Vicki wrote at one point. There's nothing to discuss. This went on for... Uh, over a year. And again, the rhetoric that came back was pretty obvious. This was not going to happen like a normal case would. If Tony and Jackie Brown saw Randy as a simple family man oppressed by the violent arm of the law, the law saw something else. A paranoid guy who was proving himself impossible to reason with. The bottom line was, is what do you want If you don't want to surrender to the U.S. Marshals, uh, you can surrender to the county sheriff, the police chief, the postal inspector. You can surrender to whoever you want. The federal government is not going to take your house. The federal government is not going to arrest your kids. It's you that we need to arrest, and so you can show up to court. And the information back came back is, uh, stay off my mountain. What they didn't see was a significant threat. He wasn't a player. That's Ron Hohen, who was an assistant U.S. attorney in Boise in 1992. No one saw him as anything that was important, just another, you know, one of these guys who spouts white supremacy, kill the Jews, kill the kill, you know, you you name it. That's everything that came out his mouth all the time. Hohen had aggressively prosecuted white supremacist criminals, including members of the order. He said his office and the marshals went to great lengths to woo Randy off the mountain, or to get him alone so they could arrest him without incident. At one point, they cooked up a plan to buy a parcel of land north of the Weaver property, with deputy marshals posing as a husband and wife who would be Randy's new neighbors. And this guy was going to drive up and down the hill through Randy's place, get to know him. The plan was that at some point, Randy would probably agree to go up and help him with, with the work, and that uh, they would get him in a car with the marshal, drive him up to that cabin, and then there would, there would be an arrest team in the woods hiding there, take him down, get him arrested, and off the hill. The obvious question is, why didn't Randy Weaver just come down from the mountain? But it's also worth asking, couldn't the government just walk away? Remember, Randy's only crime so far was to sell two illegal guns, after a federal informant baited him into it. Johnson says that's just not how it works. I don't have, as the U.S. Marshal, uh, then the luxury of saying, well, I don't think it's that big of a case, so we'll put it on the back burner. In fact, when I'd run into the judge uh, in the elevator sometimes, he'd say, where, uh, where are you going on that case? Was that every day? No, maybe once every three or four months. I said, we're working on it. Ron Hohen says he missed something important about how the Weaver household operated. I was starting to learn more and more about Vicki Weaver's influence and dominance of the family. And again, 
I wish I'd have known that long before, and I guess law enforcement, perhaps we could have taken a different tack if we'd have really known that. Hohen came to see Vicki Weaver as the real driver of the family's apocalyptic doctrine. Tony Brown agreed. Weaver's kind of a basic guy. You know, he liked to, you know, have a beer, drink a cigarette, talk, go do something, play ball. You know, just, he wasn't as convicted and as convinced as, as Vicky was. At one point, Randy and Vicky invited a local news reporter into their cabin and sat for an interview. They told him Randy wanted to give himself up for the sake of the family, but that Vicky insisted he stand firm. They were a couple, but she wore the pants in the family. She made the decisions. Randy had wanted to surrender, but she said, no, uh, this is going to fulfill the prophecy and there's going to be this shoot-off at the top of the mountain and, you know, the feds will be killed and the second coming of Christ will, will happen. And this is how this is all going to transpire. Owen found Vicky's involvement particularly incomprehensible because she was a mother. I've, I've, I've talked to a lot of women about that. And it just, why would a mother put her children in that kind of danger? And the recoil from that from virtually every mother is, I would never do that to my children. Why do that? That's one of the unanswered questions I have. Jackie Brown was close with Vicky. She says Vicky wasn't the domineering battle axe she's often been portrayed as. She was a warm and loving mother, but also a loyal wife. In my view, the federal government, what they did was they picked a target, which was Randy. And by picking Randy, they picked Vicky because they were a married couple, and and I don't know that folks think that way anymore, but my husband and I do, and they most certainly did. That means they're a unit. They're one. Attack one, you attack both. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. The wary stalemate between the Weavers and the authorities went on for a little more than a year. Things began to change when Bill Moreland started looking into it. As a reporter, you know, you pay attention to your sources, so I get wind of all this, and, you know, I could just see trouble in the making. We heard from Bill Moreland in Episode 1 when he covered the Aryan World Congress. Now he was interested in Randy Weaver. I started talking to federal uh, law enforcement sources, and I got this kind of goofy grins from them like, uh, guess what? The guy didn't show up and we got a problem on our hands. Moreland made the two-hour trip from Spokane to Naples to report on this unusual outlaw. And there was also a sentiment pretty pervasive in the community. It's just like, okay, who cares about the guy? So we, so we sawed off some shotguns. So what? Let's just leave him alone and, you know, why don't we just ignore him and maybe this all just go away. Case in point, a conversation Moreland says he had with a local sheriff. He was suggesting, you know, why do you care about him? What, why don't we just ignore him? He's up there. He's not hurting anybody. He's minding his own business. And I explained to the sheriff, I said, you know, sheriff, just a few years earlier, in May of 1985, in Philadelphia, there was 
a group of uh, African Americans, uh, some of whom were named in warrants. Law enforcement there didn't decide to leave those folks alone. He's referencing the police shootout and bombing of MOVE, a black liberation group. An urban war in Philadelphia. Scores of homes were destroyed by fire when police dropped a bomb on a heavily fortified house occupied by a radical group. At least four They moved in on them and actually started an entire city block on fire, killing 11 people, including five children. In an attempt to force the organization called MOVE from one house, 60 homes were burned. So I told the sheriff, I said, why should a white supremacist on a mountaintop in North Idaho be any different than African-Americans in a tenement in Philadelphia? We're all equal under the law, and if you're accused of breaking the law, you should have your day in court, you should be presumed innocent, but you should go face justice and accept the consequences. And the sheriff thought about that, tipped his head, and kind of shrugged his shoulders. In March of 1992, Moreland wrote a front-page story for the Spokane Spokesman Review about Randy's refusal to come down from the mountain. The headline said, Feds have fugitive under our nose. In the article, he described how two Boise-based marshals had been on the case for more than a year, gathering information on Randy's family and strategizing about how to get him down. Moreland's story got national attention. Soon, media outlets were flying helicopters over the cabin. The Weavers had no way to know it was the press and not the government circling above. Though maybe it didn't matter, because the family didn't trust either one. So it was getting a little bit of attention. Um, I don't know if any of that forced the marshal's hands, but as August of 1992 approached, there was more pressure on the marshal's service to try to bring this fugitive in. That's writer Jess Walter, who we heard from in episode one. In the months after Bill Moreland's story, the Marshall Service started keeping a closer eye on the Weaver's property. They called it Operation Northern Exposure. Mike Johnson, the U.S. Marshal for Idaho. One of the things that was concerned is now we were getting into August and then pretty soon as September and then as October deer and elk season what happens if uh, some hunter is in that area and Randy Weaver thinks it's a federal agent and shoots him? The marshals brought in an elite team known as the Special Operations Group that was trained for high-risk situations. They set up a solar-powered camera system around the Weaver property that cost more than $100,000. What they found was that the family was pretty much always armed. Surveying hours of video footage, the marshals tabulated how often each member of the family was seen carrying a weapon. 14-year-old Sammy Weaver had a gun 84% of the time. He was also spotted wearing a Nazi armband. They even commissioned a profile of the Weavers from a psychologist, who lived in Texas and had never met them. He warned, the family will fight, possibly to the death. The situation erupted into violence on August 21, 1992. At 4.30 in the morning, six U.S. Marshals arrived just below the Weaver property. They split into two teams of three to scope out the cabin. The idea was to observe the family's movements so they could figure out how to get Randy on his own and eventually make a peaceful arrest. The Marshals explored the woods below the Weaver cabin, which included a rough logging road. The temperature had been in the 90s for more than a week. 
The teams finished their work by late morning, apparently undetected. But as they were heading back to their cars, one of the family dogs, a yellow lab named Stryker, seemed to catch a scent. He tore off in the direction of one of the Marshall teams. Randy, his son Sammy, and their friend Kevin Harris followed Stryker. The body cameras the Marshalls were wearing captured the sound of his barking. Kevin was carrying a heavy hunting rifle, and Sammy had a rifle and a handgun. The three marshals ran down the hill, staying hidden in the woods. Then they hit a clearing. They were exposed. And Randy, Sammy, and Kevin followed the dog downhill after them. There was an exchange of gunfire. Marshal William Deegan was killed. So was 14-year-old Sammy Weaver. There's a dispute about who died first, and who fired the fatal bullets. The marshals say Kevin Harris opened fire and killed Bill Deegan, a 42-year-old father of two. The events I will describe next are etched in my mind, and I am certain of what I saw. Larry Cooper was one of the marshals at the shootout. He described it later at the Senate hearings on Ruby Ridge. Deputy Deegan called out, Stop, U.S. Marshals. As I heard Deputy Deegan begin to announce, I joined in. But before I finished my words... Kevin Harris turned, fired from the hip, and shot Deputy Deegan. I have a clear mental picture of Kevin Harris firing that first shot. There is no other aspect of this tragedy about which I am more certain. Cooper was a good friend of Deegan's, and he ran to Deegan's side after seeing him go down. When I reached Deputy Deegan, he was laying on his side, his arm in the sling of his rifle. He was conscious, but he did not respond to me. I tried unsuccessfully to locate the entry wound in order to stop or slow the bleeding. However, within moments, I sensed that I was losing him. I reached for the artery on his neck to feel for a pulse, and his pulse stopped beating under my fingertips. I knew he was gone. In response to Harris shooting Deegan, the surviving marshals say, another marshal opened fire and hit Sammy Weaver. They're not sure who it was. So that's the way the marshals describe it. Here's the Weaver's version. They say one of the marshals shot the dog first, and then Sammy screamed, you killed my dog, you son of a bitch. They say he opened fire, but didn't hit anyone, and then turned and ran back toward the cabin when one of the marshals shot him. They say Kevin then fired at the marshals in retaliation, or in self-defense, and maybe he hit Bill Deegan, or maybe Deegan was killed by friendly fire. Here's how Randy Weaver told the story a few years later. On August 21st, 1992, federal marshals shot my son Samuel in the back and killed him. He was running home to me. His last words were, I'm coming, Dad. They shot his little arm almost off, and they killed him by shooting him in the back in the back with a 9mm submachine gun. The gun had a silencer on it. He was not wanted for any crime. He did not commit any crime. The marshals killed his dog right at his feet. He only tried to defend himself and his dog. Sam was just 14 years old.
Bill Deegan's widow came to Washington for the Senate hearings. She didn't want to appear in front of the subcommittee herself, but she wrote a statement that was read by Senator Arlen Specter. The night before Bill left, we went to a party for my sister-in-law's birthday. While we danced to the last low song, and he told me, whatever might happen in Idaho, just remember how much I love you. And I, of course, do remember. Today, those words are strangely comforting. At the time, you can imagine they were very unsettling. And unfortunately, of course, they proved to be prophetic. I remember saying something like, come on, you're talking like someone's going to get killed out there. He responded, no one's going to get killed. That's why we're going, but this is probably the most dangerous guy I've ever had to deal with. We sent Randy Weaver a letter asking to talk with him and asked one of his former lawyers to put us in touch. But we never heard back. His daughters didn't want to talk either. But just this year, Randy gave an interview to a conservative news site in Montana. You can find the video on YouTube. It's an amateur production, filmed with a handheld camera in a restaurant. Randy is sitting in a booth between two guys who act like fanboys. He's 70, but he's gaunt and small, and he answers their questions in a hollow voice that's often hard to make out. Three minutes in, Randy says this about Bill Deegan. He, at the time, was the highest decorated marshal in U.S. marshal history, which I thought was kind of cool. got that sucker. The moment Deputy Marshal Bill Deegan was killed, the nature of the situation changed. A federal deputy marshal was shot to death near a fugitive... Police officers and federal agents have taken up positions around a remote cabin near Naples, Idaho. Never before has North Idaho witnessed this kind of firepower from the federal government. And it's all because of Randy Weaver. Weaver, his family... Because Deegan was a federal agent, the FBI now had jurisdiction over the scene. Members of the Bureau's hostage rescue team arrived the next morning. Jackie Brown. To call them hostage rescue team is offensive to my very senses. They were an assassination team. You, you would have to have an IQ of five not to understand that. The Marshal Service may have been working with partial information on the Weaver family, but at least they'd been working the case for more than a year. The FBI came in blind, and it's crazy how much bad information they were working with. Law enforcement agencies thought Randy Weaver had experience in Vietnam. Wrong. They thought the family had booby-trapped the property, or that they had armed allies ready to fight alongside them. Both wrong. The ATF claimed at one point that Randy was a suspect in multiple bank robberies. Wrong. They thought he might be growing marijuana. Wrong. The shooting gave rise to new rumors. That Randy and Kevin Harris had fired on the marshals from the cabin using automatic weapons that the family had rigged their property with explosives, that Randy and his family had the remaining marshals pinned down and refused to let them flee. All of the bad information pointed in one direction, that Randy Weaver was a very dangerous man. On the flight from Washington, D.C., the head of the FBI's hostage rescue team decided desperate times called for desperate measures. And this is when some rules of engagement are crafted, which are will become one of the most controversial and indefensible 
parts of this case from the federal side, certainly. Rules of engagement are internal guidelines that agencies use to define what kind of force can be employed under what circumstances. Standard procedure calls for deadly force to be used only in self-defense or defense of others. The FBI's new rules, drafted on the plane and revised several more times on the scene, were unusually aggressive. The final draft read, If any adult male is observed with a weapon, deadly force can and should be employed if a shot can be taken without endangering the children. In other words, if you see an armed man, shoot to kill. This would change things in a way that would be tragic because obviously the Weavers are always armed. As the FBI descended on northern Idaho, the Weavers retrieved Sammy's body and moved it to a shed. That night, the survivors huddled together in grief and terror. They wail and cry and believe that they're going to die. They hear helicopters and they hear trucks in the woods and, um, and they believe that, you know, that they are under attack and that by morning, you know, they might come and finish them all off. The next evening, a team of 11 camouflaged FBI snipers from the hostage rescue team quietly surrounded the cabin. Just before 6, Randy and Kevin dashed outside to check the grounds and grab some batteries. Sarah Weaver, the family's oldest daughter, was outside, too. Randy paused near the shed where Sammy's body was. He said he wanted to look at his son again. A helicopter buzzed overhead. Then, a shot rang out. A sniper named Lon Horiuchi had fired. Wow, I got hit. I got a few feet off away from the shed and Vicky comes out front and she's holding the baby out there by the rock and she says what happened I said I've been shot and she passed up in the hills Randy and Kevin ran back toward the house here's Randy in an interview and she ran back on the porch and opened the door and was holding the door and she said get in the house get in the house when they were almost inside Horiuchi shot again this time, the bullet hit Vicky, who had been standing in the doorway, baby Elishaba in her arms. She died almost instantly. Kevin and Randy later described the moment Vicky died to Tom Brokaw. It hit her and then hit me. Did you think you were going to die right then? Yeah. And I turned around and my wife was down on her knees with her head on the floor just inside the door with the baby in underneath her like this. Randy reached down and picked her up and the baby had blood splattered in her, in her hair. There's a picture of Vicki Weaver that was taken by the Marshal Service surveillance camera the day before she died. It's a little grainy. Vicki's outside in a white nightgown, head down, her long hair falling forward, with her arms clutched close to her body. It's the cover image for this podcast. When I see this picture, I sometimes think of a phase Vicki went through in Iowa where she purged the house of all photographs in obedience to her interpretation of scripture. Later, she loosened up about photography. But the last picture of her was taken by the government she hated. Lon Horiuchi later told investigators he mistook Randy for Kevin and thought Kevin was preparing to shoot at the helicopter. He also said he wasn't even following the revised rules of engagement. What he knew and what he was thinking would be debated in hearings and courtrooms for years to come. Best 
case scenario, Lon Horiuchi, who could hit a dime with his rifle from 100 meters, um, took two shots and in both cases didn't know what he was shooting at and missed. What should have been a straightforward case had gone horribly wrong. You know, of all the effort that we did for over a year, um, and then we lost a deputy marshal, a husband and a father just doing his job, it's just uh, still to this day, uh, I shake my head of why uh, this had to happen. If, if Randy Weaver just would have showed up to court, uh, William Deegan would be alive today and be retired, and uh, Randy Weaver's son would be alive and his wife would be alive. But he chose to uh, not do that. Everyone involved in what happened at Ruby Ridge knows there are countless ways it could have gone otherwise. The ATF could have chosen not to sting Randy on the gun sale. Randy could have chosen to show up in court. Bill Moreland could have chosen a different lead to follow and never learned about the guy who wouldn't come down from the mountain. The U.S. attorney could have chosen to drop the case. The marshals could have chosen to stay away from Randy's property. The FBI could have chosen not to change the rules of engagement. And with his family torn apart, Randy Weaver had another choice to make. Did it ever occur to you, your wife is dead, your son is dead, your great friend Kevin is gravely wounded, to walk out of the cabin, throw your arms in the air and say, No way. I surrender. No way. Why not? They'd have shot me. On the next episode of Standoff, Randy Weaver stays on the mountain while an angry crowd of supporters gathers to defend him and protest the federal government. I specifically remember a skinhead yelling, this is war, this is war. Standoff, What Happened at Ruby Ridge is brought to you by Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. Slate Plus members get a bonus episode of the show every week, with in-depth interviews going further into the characters and themes. This week, I interview historian Kathleen Ballou about the role of women in the white power movement. To hear that episode and help support the show, sign up at slate.com slash standoff. Standoff is produced by me and Nina Ernest, with production help from Andrew Parsons. Slate's editorial director for audio is Gabriel Roth. Thanks this week to Chow Tu, Greg Sprungle, Jess Walter, and Emily Gaddick.